0: I'm pleased to be speaking with John Ferrari. He recently retired from the Army with the rank of Major General and is now a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Chief Financial Officer at Complex, a data analytics and cybersecurity firm. John, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk.
1: Thanks for having me. Let's get right into
0: it. You argued in an article that, and I'll quote you here real quick, defense officials should not wait for the future. They should innovate now. What do you mean by that? In in particular, you're talking about the Navy. So can you stick with that context?
1: Yeah. So successive administrations have talked about how much money they put into RDT&E and investing for the future and modernizing for 2020, 2030, always 10 years out. And so we never actually deliver capability to the warfighters because we're always chasing the next big thing. And so my point was, if you look at the American economy, which is driving global innovation, right? It's lots of small innovations now that gets in the hands of consumer. So in particular with the Navy, which has had acquisition disaster after acquisition disaster, trying to build new ships and cost overruns and ships that don't work, all the new technology. My point was rather than going out and trying to build an entire new class of ships with artificial intelligence and new propulsion and all that other stuff, why don't you take ships you have today and try to put into them technology that exists today, such as software, and and just like they're doing when, in the car industry, and see what, how you can enhance the systems you have today and learn. That's the key is to learn with the technologies and to mature them before you build new platforms. It seems like
0: that was the kind of issue that I call leapfrogging. The military always wants to get to that next generation that like is surpassing everything. But you're saying you want to outfit existing ships with things like. 5G sensors and figure your way around that. But the converse is actually, I think a couple NDAAs ago, they had the, you're not going to build a new ship platform straight away. You're actually going to start with land-based testing and do this disaggregated approach. And then once you get to super high TRL, then you can integrate it on, onto a platform. Does that solve some of your issue or is that just completely different, right? You're just saying, Let's just experiment with what we have now instead of going after a new program.
1: Both. So the problem with new programs and new ships and even experimentation on land is that you're restricted to the big primes who can play this long game of procurement cycles. So what, what I'm my, my recommendation, our recommendation was to take ships you have today, outfit them from front to back with 5G. So you've got this wireless spectrum and put fiber optics in them. And then use the Army's IVAS system as an operating system, which is commercial based off of Microsoft, uh, Azure Cloud, and and Xbox. And then just invite all sorts of non-traditional software and other companies onto these ships to see how they can write code and automate and help people today. You put the engineers who are slinging code with the sailors on the ship, enabled by connectivity and a commercial operating system. And you'll see a lot of innovation that will occur. Yeah, it seems like that's
0: where the Navy's trying to go, or at least uh, Admiral Selby with the integrated battle problem and some of those experimentations. Do you think they're doing a little bit better job of that? Looks like you're kind of asking them to walk and chew gum at the same time a little
1: bit, right? Yeah, so the challenge, of course, is when you have little pockets, right? Those pockets exist only so long as somebody who's the advocate for it is there. And then it dies off and the, the big programs take control and the big programs control the money. And so you you get what's called the valley of death. You do these little innovation cycles, and then nobody knows what to do with the systems once they're done. The proposal is make this how the Navy does business, which is take these ships out and then let people compete and then use them to upgrade. The Navy's got 300 ships that have to be upgraded. It can't be that, okay, we'll upgrade these 300 ships in the next 50 years as we replace them one by one. That's a strategy for failure, given the pace of new ship construction and the pace of technological change. There's really no way you can sit around today and say, hey, I know what 2030 is going to look like technology-wise, because we have no idea. If you look back to 2010 and look forward to 2020, you, you would have missed the whole mobile revolution. And you've got to take advantage of the technology today and innovate as fast as you can.
0: Yeah. I like to point out sometimes that the DoD, when it was going after Jedi, AWS came out in 2006. So like the DoD was really trying to get its hands around like an enterprise strategy for cloud like 15 plus years after. When I read that article from you, I actually was thinking of a, a Rickover speech that I had just recently read where he says, and I'll just quote him here, few new ships were built immediately after World War I, so that line officers had a chance to learn how to use battleships, destroyers, submarines, and to experiment with aircraft carriers. The EDOs, of course, the engineering duty officers, in turn had to become educated in their profession. Uh, so do you think there's some kind of similarity there after World War I, or is the money problem actually part of this? If you were money constrained, you would actually be probably using legacy ships to do these types of things in the way that you suggest, but maybe the way the system works or like the way you have to get a bunch of money for a new ship program, everyone's looking for that next new thing rather than just doing the, the incremental upgrades. It's all revolution leapfrogging rather than
1: incremental upgrades. Yeah. We didn't get where we are today by one bad decisions. It was bad processes and ancient processes piled on top of each other. So the, the quote's right. So part of the problem is today is people sit around in the Pentagon and all these training places and requirements and say, how do we want to fight in the future? Let's go and invent the technology to go do that. And then they spend the next 10 years and they rotate in and out and nobody's ever there at the end of that to actually be held accountable. For the PowerPoint slides that have all the lightning bolts and all the new innovation. And then a miracle happens. Well, if you think about it, right, the way things work in the real world is, right, people get technology in their hands. So when Steve Jobs put the iPhone out, he didn't plan to disrupt the taxi industry, but Uber was born by using that. The same thing, he didn't intend to blow up. Nobody sat around and said, what I want to do is blow up the hotel industry with the by renting out people's rooms. So let's invent a smartphone to do that, right? That's not the way it works. So you have to put the technology in the hands of the warfighters, and they will innovate how they fight around it. There's a great story with the Army's IVAS system, this individual virtual augmentation system. When fielded to a soldier in the 82nd Airborne, he was trying to shoot his rifle. And he said, hey, how the Army taught me to shoot the rifle, I couldn't do it because of all these things. So I spent about 40 minutes at the range, and I figured out a new way to shoot the rifle, and I never miss a target. Now, if the Army had done this in the requirements sense, in the normal way of doing things, it would have said, IVAS has to be designed so that soldiers can fire their weapon in accordance with field manual XXXXX. And we would have tried to map the technology around how we wanted to fire a weapon in Vietnam, as opposed to putting the technology out there and letting them innovate how they do their tactics, techniques, and procedures
0: yeah that was uh interesting i saw a little bit on that so they're like the soldiers now with the augmented reality headset of the ivax it, it's more efficient to shoot from the hip or something like that and so they actually have to relearn and that would have been something impossible to have predicted in the requirement stage is that what was going on not only impossible to predict
1: but heresy how could it be right <laughs> so that's not how i learned how to shoot but this is the xbox generation right and so Microsoft brought to IVAS its engineers, its Xbox technology and cloud computing and brought them all together. Soldiers said, hey, we spent about 30 minutes with the system or a couple hours and the menus were all familiar. Think about the last time when normal programs feel to soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines, you have to go to class for months on end to learn how to use it because none of it's intuitive. What was great about this was Right, the system they use commercial standards, and the kids out there know how they know the menus to pull down the field, the colors, what all that stuff means, and they just taught themselves how to use it. And so that's the challenge, and that's why I say, hey, get this stuff out there, use commercial-based standards and technologies, and we will have innovation.
0: Yes, yeah, so You've also you've been talking a little bit about IVAS and other articles as well. So can you just talk a little bit about where did that program come from in terms of soldier systems? And then what was innovative about it? In terms
1: yeah, so IVAS is a phoenix rising out of the ashes of disaster. So a couple of years ago, the Army decided after 20 years of trying to build its own network, WinT. That that it would abandon that effort. Go figure. The army was trying to outcompete Verizon, AT and T, and all the giant global telecoms. So with that was this gap and some funding and nothing to do until it figured out what it was going to do next for the communication system. And so there was some money le- aside, and the 82nd Airborne had been a hotbed of innovation for using mobile devices in combat and there were a lot of special operators that were going back and forth between the 82nd and Bragg and had been using mobile devices and were very, very comfortable using those types of handhelds and devices in actual combat operations. So there was this idea to put the Microsoft programmers, right? Microsoft had an idea to use virtual, its goggles and its Xbox technologies to really leap ahead and, and knit together the smartphone with a wearable device and with, with goggles. And so within a year, they had working prototypes. And within two years, they, they were off to building a programmer record. But what was great about the program no requirements documents, right? So the end state was what was developed on the ground in coordination. They would go out in the field. Soldiers would say, hey, I don't like this. They'd recode it at night and they'd be back out in the field the next day. No change documents, no orders documents, no programmer record, no funding line. And now it's going through the normal testing and a lot of that stuff. And they'll work out the the bugs. But it's a great example and it's expanding rapidly across the force you can sit inside of Bradley and see outside the Bradley now pretty clearly and you can communicate with everybody using commercial standards
0: yeah that kind of sensor fusion sounds really cool it's interesting on the IVAS, I read an article actually from Microsoft where they were talking about like how they went through that requirements process it was not list a hundred specifications of things people think they need and then go deliver like Microsoft actually had all its self-funded stuff that they're bringing to the table. And then they went through quick rounds. It looked like a user test and feedback and development. And they were saying like, no one could have predicted, or we couldn't have predicted like how the, the soldier would use this thing in combat. Or there's the puck, I think part of it. And when the folks army crawl, it gets in the way. So they had to do all these types of things, but it wasn't just a series of requirements, it was put it out there and then let the user give the requirement back. Is that something? that needs to just be spread to more types of programs? Is that like a middle tier thing only? Or how do you think about that
1: process filtering out for the rest of the system? Yeah, it used to be filtered across everything. And when you think about it, one of the reasons in the commercial sector and in your life you can communicate is you have these kind of monopolies of operating systems, right? You either have an iPhone or an Android phone, right? So your email works together. It's not that hard. It's all interoperable. You have that now with IVAS, right? You've got this kind of operating system out there based on commercial technologies, commercial standards, so that all these small software companies, any, right, most people out there know how to write and sling code uh, around that. And that was why we said for the Navy, hey, take this IVAS and you, you put it on your ship. So you've got the goggles, you've got this operating system, you've got the cloud platform. It's the same that the Army has. It's already been built. And now you can have interoperability between ships and soldiers and across the ship, and you have people now slinging code against all of that. And then it's it's kind of build the operating system first and, and the battery pack and then build the car around it as opposed to saying, hey, I want a car. Now let's go build an operating system and, and batteries that fit inside the car. Yeah, that- I think a lot of people
0: would say, like, the, the Department of Defense loves its legacy approach. It tries to fit everything into a platform, and it might get the order of operations wrong sometimes on that. But you recommended that the Navy actually should adopt the Army IVAT HoloLens. But I actually saw recently that the Army's Dragon Layer Shark Tank, they actually might fund an ocean-augmented reality system from Google Glass instead. And, like, how do you see, should the IVAT now, like, as an Army system broach into the Navy because the HoloLens really isn't like service specific itself? Or do you think the natural ways of these things working out the Navy will go after its own system?
1: Yeah. So the natural ways is, right, we've got to have separate competitions, right? Because the system is set up to fear this monopoly provider of things, yet that's what we wind up with. We contract monopoly anyway. So we used to have several several companies that made fighter jets, and then we contracted to the F-35 and that didn't work out too well. There's a natural, though, kind of operating system level of monopoly that if you don't have, you just can't have interoperability. Your DVR can't talk to your blender. Now we're bringing in Nest and Google where they're starting to wire together a lot of the things in the house, but it's a common operating system. It's Windows, it's Mac, it's Android. So you've got to have this foundation because otherwise you just spend all your time and money chasing different versions of software that people don't know how to use. And so IVAS and the Azure cloud for the combat systems might be it. Now, it might be that Google Glass becomes interoperable or is not, right? So that's fine. But you can't have different operating systems running around out there. Otherwise, you'll never be able to pass the data, which is really what's needed in this new type of information operations, artificially intelligence-driven warfare that everybody's talking about. Yeah, so it seems you're talking about IVATS almost as an operating system for
0: elements of the department. A palantir has been talking about that. They want to be the department's operating system. Is this kind of like the, the new play to, if you plant that kernel, then you can grow massively in that space. Yeah, so Palantir is a data analytics system, so it's different than being an operating system. You know, they they, they, they want to be the they operating do. system, but so you, it seems like it would be like at a different point. IVAS is out on the edge, and Palantir's back after everything's been collected, like connected to through the cloud or something. Right.
1: Now, how would you think about that? I think they 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 see themselves as a place where all the data comes in, and gets assembled and gets analyzed and then spit back out. But it's not going to be, it's not integrating email and sensors and, uh, and all of that. That's just not what it does as a system. You know, there's different points, different operating systems that you can have. So it's, I think they view themselves as an operating system for data analytics. And let's talk a little bit, like back on the i. let's just imagine that this world of like a fully networked
0: system of IVAX is pulling in data from all these types of sensors. Do you think this leads to, I can imagine someone sitting back at command headquarters like looking down and seeing everybody and where they are and what they're seeing. Do you think IVAS leads to more of this type of centralization that we've actually seen over maybe the past 20 years? Or do you think it actually flips the script and kind of gets you towards a more mission command culture?
1: It's no different than Waze or Google Maps. in in essence, nobody's sitting around and micromanaging cars as they're going, but you aggregate the data and you can see where the traffic points are. Now this gets to JADC2, which is trying to build this global operating environment. So in typical fashion, all of the senior people in the military today really came of age in Desert Storm. And Desert Storm was the classic computer systems and communication networks of its time, which was top-down architecture. Right, information is generated up top, it's sent down, and then pulled back up, but it's really top down driven. And when you think about mainframe computers and communication networks, right, the personal commuter really didn't come of age until the 90s and then really was unleashed. And the bottoms up revolution started in really 2008 with the smartphones. And that's the revolution we're going now. Jad C just harkens back to the top down, and it's much harder. Right, Social media and Facebook and Instagram and all of these email and, and ways, you couldn't build it top down. You've got to collect the data bottom up. And then it turns out that it's much easier to aggregate data and filter data on the way up the communications network than it is to do it top down. So what I see is, right, if you, I the reason I like IBAS is if you're fielding hundreds of thousands of these to infantry soldiers and line soldiers and logistic soldiers, and they're all interoperable with each other. Well, now to go up and to build a global communication system, you've just got to aggregate up. So I think there'll just be too much information for people to go, hey, a little bit to the left. But however, we've seen that look at the special operators, right? You can sit in the White House and monitor a special operations mission live in the situation room. But you can only do that for one or two, and so when everybody has it, it becomes a lot harder to micromanage. But what it allows then is for situational awareness and artificial intelligence, everybody know where perhaps the priorities are or what's going on the battlefield.
0: Yeah, it seems in the JADC2 approach that they're top-down is like, we will pre-tell you what the standards are, right? That will allow you to interoperate with this operating system, let's say. And then you guys go out and build. And I I would say that seems to be the J6 cross-functional team approach that's prevalent today. But there's also been a lot of calls for creating something like a program office or joint program office of sorts to really be the one place that does all the JADC2 stuff, whatever that means. Can you just talk about what's your view on the department's take? You talk a little bit about this bottom up, top down. Where do you think like the actual kind of organization and what they need to focus on needs to be?
1: Yeah. So this is the classic absurdity of the entire system, right? So think about this. You or I could right now take out our smartphone, type out an email, put an emoji in it and send it to the president of Iran. The president of Iran can actually, it'll translate itself, and he can read it in Farsi. He can listen to it in Farsi. You can type it. He can listen to it. And the emoji comes through exactly how you sent it. Yet we at the Pentagon need a program office and requirements documents to figure out how to pass graphics from the United States English-speaking to the British English-speaking, and how to pass a graphic from, from a plane to a soldier. And we're going to spend years and years trying to figure that out. Hey, graphics are just emojis. Hey, all this text and voice, right, all of that already exists and is capably embedded in commercial software already. There is nothing to actually design to put this stuff together. We've just got to accelerate the trend to using commercial standards and that's one of the reasons if you're building new systems and it takes you 30 or 40 years to get there, rather than taking commercial technology today and embedding it in the current systems, you'll never get there because the system every five or 10 years, the systems are changing. Think of the Army's Joint Light Tactical Vehicle. So it's got, it, it's dumb, right? It's just steel. It's a small MRAP. But think about the car that people can drive today. Look at a Tesla. It's got all this technology and it's got a backup camera. It's got sensors. The, the Army has none of that, right? In the year 2021, not a backup camera on a wheeled vehicle to be found. No auto locking brakes. So now they're like, okay, we still want to produce the JLTV. How, what are we going to do? So it's we've got to figure out how to get that stuff into the system much quicker than we're doing it now. One thing that comes to mind as we're talking about IVAS
0: and some of these other things, it feels like there's the JADC2 cross-functional team and all these people focusing on that but it seems like some of the Jazzy too is just coming together under our noses because the com in the commercial world it kind of already exists, and so you're seeing that with IVAs and other things like that. Do you think that's ultimately what will happen? It's just like these, like small networking things. I was just learning about Diffi, which is a new kind of consortium in space for coming up with interoperability standards, like the five T community has been doing. Do you think like the coordinated single effort is actually not? the place where jat 2 will come together and it will just kind of come together under our noses in a more federated manner?
1: Yeah, so in our commercial sector, the great thing about the United States economy is creative destruction, right? Where the IBMs, the Wang computers, the Oracle, think about the big names in technology all got run over by all these startups who from the bottom up, they surprised everybody and boom, they woke up and they were Google, they were Facebook, they were Microsoft and all these giants tumbled. The challenge, of course, in defense is, right, it's a top-down Soviet-style dictatorship. So it's a, it's the ultimate command economy. So it, it's easy to squash the innovation and say, no, we know better, and it's going to be top-down. So that's the tension. How do you overturn 50 years or 70 years of post-World War II bureaucracy that's been put in the system and the challenge is, right, you have this turnover at the bottom, right? If you look at the founders who who led this tech revolution, they were at their companies and pushed through 10, 15 years, and they had big, powerful venture capital backers, right, who provided the money to withstand all the losses while they did that. Think of how much money Amazon lost, right, before it became profitable. So, without a sponsor providing money and cover, it becomes hard to survive in a command economy. And that's where the United States Congress comes in because ultimately they are the venture capital arm of the department that they provide the funding. And so, as they provide the funding and allow things to grow, or if they keep funding the, you know, reinforcing the money to the big programs, that's when you have a problem. When you said Congress is the venture capital arm
0: of the department, that got me scared a little bit. But, (laughs) you know, one thing that, I I sometimes say is the way the department has these programs of record, right? The Navy has a 30-year shipbuilding plan and everything. Like, we're always looking past multiple decades. The way the department works is like, in order to even get the money to go do something, you have to line up this program of record. And the way I almost think of it, it's like going to a, a startup and telling them, if you want any venture capital or any kind of investment funding, you have to pack a series A, B, C, all of your rounds into like the seed stage and have a fully defined thing and like your venture capitalist will hold you to that plan before you even start. So they like in the commercial side, there's definitely this kind of incremental show me. And then we'll talk about more funding when you need to get there and you control your burn and and development process. Whereas in the department is like, we pack it all up front. Do you see that as being an issue? It's, It's a great
1: point. And it reminds me of, if you look at ISIS in Iraq, they came out of Syria and were driving through and took Fallujah and were working their way through. And look how they leveraged technology that existed and social media. And right, it was a couple of ragtag soldiers that crushed the Iraqi army through Facebook posts and what apps and strategic disinformation campaigns and they fought a war and won the battles on social media a new way of warfare where in the Department of Defense it's like hey you can't use those on our network so we're not you know out there doing that and so you've got to as you said you've got to get this bottoms up thing tolerate small failures and understand hey you'll put these things out there some of it'll work some of it won't work but you'll learn so when you look at I'iva all those, quick turns that you talked about they weren't failures they were learning opportunities the problem when you build a big program is when it fails look at comanche or look at the aircraft carrier or look at the joint strike fighter you've got nothing you've got nothing to fall back on because you've destroyed any remnants of alternative solutions and then you're you've just got to keep sinking good money after bad because you don't have an alternative well you want are lots of alternatives and one of those systems will win
0: that's just Seems like it makes so much sense and the government. So it's so hard to do that in government. And it seems like there's just been like this big paradigm shift in how systems have been built. So like the way I tend to look at the, the overarching history of this thing, back in the 50s and before, you had like these technical services and bureaus. They would focus on a kind of component growth and then the contractors integrate the platforms around it. And they could move money and do things pretty quickly. And actually a lot of programs would move along or projects would keep going in the face of opposition from leadership. Whereas today, they've kind of been flipped, right? You have this quote unquote weapon systems approach where all the components are actually like purpose built to this platform. So we start with the platform in mind and then we build the components in as opposed to saying, "Hey, let's start with operating system. Like we're saying like, no, you're going to start with the shell of the hardware and then work everything into that. And so things just naturally become... Non interoperable. Do you have you also seen this kind of like paradigm shift? Do you believe in that? And you know what's your view on it? I do
1: believe in it, but the problem is right that the entire system and bureaucracy and funding and requirements is set up for the build the platform. And so if you look at the Army's future vertical lift helicopter program, it's the perfect example, right? Instead of saying what we're going to build is a reconnaissance system, an airborne reconnaissance system right we're building a helicopter that's manned unmanned and then you build around that and so you've already locked yourself into a design because you've decided there's going to be a pilot in the helicopter that now you have to build in all the safety all the weight and then you start inserting in around that all the kind of technology as opposed to starting with the technology and then building the aircraft around it, and then finding out you actually don't need a pilot. And once you take the pilot out, all of a sudden, that helicopter, you can really change the design, the aerodynamics. You can change what you put in. You can change how the software operates. You can change your risk tolerance, right? Because you're like, okay, if it crashes, right, w- right, we-, we got it. Or You can change the mission profile because there's not a human in there. And, and then you can just build these things, and you build them a lot less expensive, and then they become semi-disposable. And you can iterate new technology and new designs as you go forward. And then you're you're perhaps casting industry to bring you new designs around new software drops. And it's hey, now the software can do this, so maybe we can change this mission set. And it's really about integrating sensors with data, right, in remote areas. And there you can hopefully get away from, there's got to be a person in there. And unfortunately, the army has not gone down that path. The army has said. There's going to be a person in the cockpit of that armed reconnaissance helicopter. And so now you're locked into a design and a way of doing business and a bureaucracy that says, if you have a person in there, here are the hundred things you have to do. If you take the person out, all those hundred things go by the wayside and now you can really innovate. And there are only so many companies that can go out there and do that. And if you look at what Anduril is doing, so Anduril started off Palmer Lucky and the, the Oculus Rift and Facebook. So they're similar to IVAS. They're taking that Facebook technology of virtual augmentation. They started with integrating sensors together and now they're integrating along with airborne pods and you can see them planting the seeds of an unmanned reconnaissance vehicle that could perhaps do battle, bureaucratic battle with, the, with, with helicopters in a way that Elon Musk did with Space Edge. We forget that he had to sue the Air Force to allow them to use his system. Palantir had to sue the Army to use commercial analytics. So, right, in some respects, you've got to have some of these tech companies have to have deep-seated financial backings to take on the bureaucracy your typical startup's not able to do that. And that's the great thing about our system is we have some people willing to to put some money on the table and challenge the bureaucracy.
0: Yeah, that's, I think, the thing that Palmer Luckey says quite often, right? It's like, the the only companies to reach billion-dollar status in the Department of Defense that started out had these billionaire backers. And so you start a billionaire to become a millionaire in this business. But it seemed like when I saw what they were doing, like, they came out with the the ghost drone and it started it almost looked like a toy to some degree but they were really starting out with that operating system and sensor fusion and Palmer lucky in a recent interview at the Reagan Forum he was talking about we want to be like that central hub that connects all the the sensors out there and so we get the full 360 degree view so it looks like there's definitely some competition on that front and maybe the competition's a good thing but it just seemed like that was like the smarter way to go about because the hardware you can just you can build that out and scale that out. Um, incrementally, but if you don't have the core operating system and mission systems in there, then all of that—the rest—is for naught. So you're saying, like, Enduro might have that sleeper system that might replace or be be better than what the Army can put out with FVL, be, because they're starting in the the wrong direction. Is that?
1: Yeah, not just that, but I think maybe it goes back to your earlier point. Maybe that's the actual other operating system next to IVAS. You got Microsoft, right? So this is a a android versus iphone and and you have a duopoly and not a monopoly or or maybe three you can have three operating systems like you have google cloud you have azure and you have amazon cloud right there there's probably not room for many but what's key to it is right whether you have an iphone or an android phone they're frenemies they compete but they're also smart enough to know you've got to be able to send an email and make a phone call from one device to another so they cooperate on the standards of information interchange, and then they, they compete on user usability. Can, how do we get the user to make it easier for the user to do that? And so you've got IVAS and Microsoft on one side, you've got Anduril on another side, you talked about the Google Glasses and maybe the Google operating system on another side. And so long as we, so that in the commercial sector, they all come together at these standard bodies and they hash out and they say, hey, if it's these digits, ones and zeros, it's a birthday cake emoji. And no matter what it is, when you send the birthday cake emoji, it's going to show up as a birthday cake emoji. In the Department of Defense, from the government, we punish these companies and prohibit them from coming together outside the contracting process to cooperate. That's part of the culture that's got to change, which is, hey, you guys get together, you figure out the standards. Because right now the approach is, Hey, Jad C2, we'll stand up a program office and we'll come up with the standards and tell you all. Holy cow, nobody's going to adapt whatever we come up with in Department of Defense because it'll be so unique, right? So you've got to allow these companies to come together and cooperate in order to compete. And that's then when you can have competition. You have cooperation to enable competition. Unfortunately, the system is set up in it views as cooperation, as antitrust and illegal collaboration. So it's a, a, a mindset change of the bureaucracy that's got to occur so that you can share the graphics and everybody agrees what they are.
0: Yeah, it seems like that's the narrowing in of the program stovepipes, right? It's like you create the program and then uh, everyone focuses like inwardly on that program, getting those KPPs, getting that cost schedule. And then these other global type of issues with the portfolio kind of fall by the wayside because who gets put in charge of that? Let's create a program to do it. It's the natural way to do it. And I'm definitely hearing you. it will be interesting to see some kind of cooperative, competitive modes there. I think the Jedi, again, I'll bring that one back up. The department thought like very in terms of, well, cloud, we need one. So it's, everything's interoperable. And so one will rule them all, become a monolith. And that turned out to be problematic for a number of reasons. And now they've moved to a, a joint warfighting cloud capability, I believe it's called, where they're onboarding, onboarding like four different providers. And actually, I think the J6 cross Functional team has has a working group on cloud interoperability. So it'd be interesting to see that approach, more federated approach, get dug into the rest of these JADC2 discussions because it seems like they're everyone's just aggregating it back up. We need a program office. This isn't working, but it feels like when I read all these articles going on, there's just a ton of groundswell of different activities. Maybe it's just not clear how they come together.
1: Yeah, you brought it up before in that the department's 20 years behind everybody else. So it woke up one afternoon in the late 2010s and said, my God, I need cloud computing. But whoever wakes up and says, I need cloud computing. Cloud computing is a commodity provider of compute power right and and services and and so it went out to do low cost technically feasible that which it does okay who can provide me cloud computing but cloud computing doesn't actually get you anything it's how you use it and what you do to enable it and instead of setting up and saying hey okay here's what we want our cloud computing has to be secure here are some non-commercial standards that because we're the Department of Defense, you have to meet, you have to really focus on the security of of the cloud and the data and the encryption that's unique to the Department of Defense. And then saying, okay, now programs that go build things, you have to build it in the cloud. Instead, we tried to contract, again, contract Monopoly, pick one cloud provider and that's it. And well, okay, that, that might be it. and You might pick the best one in 2018, but that best cloud provider is probably not the best one in 2020 or 2022 or 2024. So what you want to do is enable lots of different cloud computing capability and capacity, if for no other reason than to prevent single points of failure. Now, if you look at the Joint Strike Fighter, a bad part takes down the entire fighter jet program in the Department of Defense, right? It grounds the whole system, bad software, right? You need resilience. And so resilience would mean, okay, Cloud computing is just a commodity provider and allow the cloud service providers to then compete on services and usability that they provide to the program offices. And interoperability would be an advantage, right? Hey, I'm interoperable, so use me. Or, hey, I've got better user interfaces. Hey, look at all these free tools I provide. And and so that's probably the better way about it, right? This buy one approach. And select one winner and go to a monopoly was probably not the right idea. Whenever you see those
0: statistics on like percent competition, I think it's like half now, but even those competitions are just this one-time static thing. Because it's so big and so important, it takes years to get these solicitations out and then get the bids in. And then you go through protests and, and like source selections and all that. And it's just, it's like this SPO competition that happens once. And then you just get the, you get the lock in right after that, as opposed to being able to move through. And I guess the commercial aspects of some of this allow for, I think the big thing was we don't want to have to develop and spend all 10 development, the same dollars um, to spread across 10. And then we just pick one anyway. But if there's a commercial capability, it's already self-funded, right? It's already going. Um, you just have to do some of the marginal stuff to to get it there. So it seems like, Commercial is a big advantage, right? If you can make use of it, because otherwise you're pushed back into that static mentality as to dynamic and evolving.
1: Yeah, but we also can't lock ourselves into old. Part of the problem is a lot of the standards we have assume when you buy something, you're going to have it for 50 years and therefore you do certain things to it as opposed to, hey, I'm going to have it for a couple of years so I can accept the fact that if I break it, it breaks and I'm not going to repair the smartphone. I think initially when the smartphones came out, it was like, how are we going to repair them? You don't, you throw it away and you get a new one, as opposed to oh, we're gonna have it for fifty years. And that mentality of oh, I'm gonna have it for fifty years then leads you down the path of it better be right. So I wanna take my time because I'm gonna have it for so long. Right now you go out and you write people buy these smartphones and these smart watches and you're like, Oh, it's a couple of years and right then on something else. And so the Department of Defense needs to really start moving in that direction, but it's hard to do when you have these kind of budget appropriation cycles that require you to know down to the nth detail what quantity of what you're going to buy three to five years from now, and you've got to go through all this bureaucracy. There's got to be a way to put trust back into the system, because if there's no trust in the system, which there is not now, then everything gets micromanaged down to the quantity of systems you're buying, and you can't move money from failure to success when you have those multiple failures. And that's when you get locked into problems. And that's that valley of death that that, that really the, the people who want to innovate, the small companies can't survive. And it goes back to your comment, right? If you're not backed by a billionaire or you're not already part of the defense establishment, one of the big primes that have these generational programs that you can siphon some pennies off of to do innovation, it's just really hard to do business with Department of Defense because you'll go bankrupt doing it. So what do you think about
0: the future of these tech companies in defense? Some of them will be able to start moving up the value chains, being like these big primes eventually, getting some of that dynamic change that we see. If you look at the S&P 500 top you know, companies, you see that change, but you don't really see a change so much in the department of defense. Do you think we'll see that? Or is it just this, this kind of cohort that's breaking through now? Will there be more firms that will come up? Or is it likely to just revert back in on itself and we'll get continued consolidation?
1: So I think there's a couple of things that you just talked about. So the first is, when you look at Palantir, you brought them up before, they've got a market cap that's almost three quarters the size of, let's say, Northrop Grumman, which when you think about it, for only a fraction of the revenue. So in some respects, the market is rewarding companies such as Palantir, C3.ai backed by another billionaire, Tom Siebel, for this. And you look at the Anduril's, private equity funding already rewarding it with these really high commercial sector multiples, but they're all backed by deep pockets. I think the challenge for the tech industry right now is going to be picking sides, right? So the world, technology, the internet is balkanizing into really three different places. So this, this kind of notion of one global inter- internet, The tech companies are these, we're not nationalistic, we're not a U.S. company, we're a global company, we are global citizens. That's breaking down, and I think the internet and and the commercial sector is going to break into three pieces. One will be led by the Chinese, and you will have Chinese tech companies and have very different standards of government intrusion and censorship and the ability to block things, right? So that'll be very controlled by the Chinese government. And they're going to, they're big enough that they can do that. The other will be what I call kind of the Western democracies, right? That that kind of the internet, maybe as we know it today, but really divorced of kind of Chinese components. And you can see the problem playing out even with chips and, and technologies, you know, that are made in Asia. We're going to need to diversify our supply chain and and look at bringing that home. And then I think there's going to be a third internet technology base of maligned actors, everybody else from the Russians to the Iranians to, right, all the kind of bad actors out there who want to control things, but don't want to necessarily cozy up to the Chinese way of doing things, but aren't going to be reliant on the American internet and the the American spy agencies to do that. So it's going to force, and you see it playing out now, and you see these discussions going on in the commercial sector playing out. Hey, who's doing business with China? Why are you doing that? Where are your chips made? Hey, are you taking when the Chinese government says, bow before us, do you do that? And if you do that for data and you do that for production technology, are you going to hand over secrets to them that then can come back and be used to, to cripple the American economy and American supply chain? So I think these tech companies, and you saw a lot of pushback a couple of years ago, when Google was doing work on artificial intelligence and people said, oh, we can't do it for defense yet. When you look at what they were doing in China, you're like, wait a minute, what are you doing over there? And so I think you're starting to see now Microsoft, right? We talked about them doing business. They could become a large defense contractor. You look at Amazon, right? On the logistics side, they're already woven into lots of things defense does. And you could see them becoming kind of you know, the question is, why do we have the Defense Logistics Agency? Why don't we just outsource that to Amazon? I understand why we had it in the past, right? It was Amazon before Amazon. But there's no reason to have it today other than we have it and we can we don't know how to get rid of it. But you know, Amazon Cloud Computing and you Google and you Microsoft and Yanderlow kind, and you see what you see partly growing up are these firms backed by these billionaires who say, okay, my commercial company, I've got this workforce that doesn't necessarily want to do business with the government, but I'm just going to take the technology and my money. The great thing about America, right? Capital, land, labor, capital, right? I'll just take the capital. I got the intellectual property. I'll just form a new LLC over here, throw some money in there, and off to the races, we'll form a company that supports the Department of Defense. And everybody who's hired in there is going to know that. And we'll just build it that way from the start. And we can do that. So that's what you see happening now. But at some point, the big companies, the big tech companies, right, you see that pressure building now. You see the pressure building on the investment community, right? There was a recent article, an interview with Ray Dalio about his investments in China. So you see this friction, this kind of cold war. You see what's happening with Russia and the Ukraine. You see the spy software being misused by these maligned nation. So all of that's playing out now. And I think over the next three to five years, people are going to have to pick sides.
0: That's a really interesting view because it seems like those billionaires that kind of got into defense, they all say, we did it for ideological reasons, not to make money, really. Maybe there's part money, but Elon Musk wants to go to uh, space. He wants to get to Mars. Palmer, lucky. He just flat out believed it in the mission. But it seems like what, what you're saying here is that there's just going to be like a geopolitical shift and these companies are going to be able to ride that and actually grow through it. So it seems like we've seen those polls come out recently that views on China have just been plummeting over the last couple of years across the world in the OECD countries. And a lot of these companies are now realizing, especially in Silicon Valley, there was that optimism, but they're realizing they're being boxed out. They're not going to make money there anymore. It, it might be natural for them to, to fall back in, but you think that these companies are here to stay and then they will be able to grow their footprint because defense, yes, the, the top line goes up and down, but it's a zero sum game, right? If some of these new companies start gaining, then there's only one place for the traditionals to go, which is down. And I think you're seeing that with SpaceX and in ULA. Some of that's just the ability to get product out there. What's your perception? We're we at the point of no return. These companies are, are probably going to grow.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, two two things. One is I, I just want to maybe not agree with your statement that these billionaires are doing it for ideological reasons. They're in it for the money. And Elon Musk wants to go to Mars, but he wants the US government to pay for it. So he didn't sue the government because he wanted to go to Mars. He wanted the government to essentially buy his rocket space, so rocket ships and missions so that then he could have money in order to go to Mars. So they have this vision of the future and they want to break up. Pierre Thiel didn't wake up and go, I really want to help the warfighter out. He saw the amount of money to be made in data analytics and bankrolled suing the Department of Defense to use commercial software system rather than custom building it. So then to the second part of your question is, right, okay, right zero sum sort of, maybe not. So the great thing about the American economy is innovation is not zero sum, right? This is not, if if I make money, you have to lose money, right? It's I make money and you make money. So there's room, innovation that drives down cost, that drives out massive inefficiencies in the systems where think about all the big defense prize, each writing their own software code, and then a whole nother army of software people in the Pentagon called JADC and wasting all of that money. What what if instead they all got together and said, okay, this is how we're going to share information. And and all of that cost is now driven out. And now you have affordable systems that can innovate and they're allowed to leverage their commercial technology, which already exists. And they don't have to go through the entire defense. Hey, you do this. And then I'll tell you whether you're right or you're wrong. You show up with a product and now you're just cranking things out for the marginal cost of production. Now there's enough for lots of people, right? Because you've driven out all those inefficiencies. The last part, hey, I think I read recently IBM's breaking up, right? General Electric is breaking up, right? When computers doesn't exist anymore. A lot of these defense, the traditional defense companies may not make it, some of them. Now there's only a couple of them left because the Department of Defense has protected them. So the question is, at what point will an administration the Congress come in and stop protecting them and allow them to really feel the pressure of competition. Wall Street rewards these innovative tech companies in defense very differently than it rewards the giant defense companies. So the giant defense companies are rewarded for producing cash, right? So when you listen to all their investor calls and you look at their stock price, it's how much cash are they producing, which means they can't innovate on their own. They need the government to give them money. They can't afford to take the risk of, producing three or four things and then going to see what the customer wants to do because right then they're not producing that cash so they always start off their conversations with this is what the army told me to do which is very different than these other companies that are funded that are that that have these large market caps or these large venture capital backups that are losing money and and it's that potential for future growth that that the markets rewarding them on so microsoft could afford send engineers down and take a flyer on using its commercial technology because it's it's being rewarded on future revenue growth, not on producing cash. And so that's going to have to shake itself out in the coming years. And the problem is, once you're addicted to one way of doing business, just look at all the companies that have come and gone in the commercial sector.
0: Yeah, there's definitely, it seems like there's the dividend play of the traditional primes and then the the growth play of, of the newer companies. But It seems like some of that is like the realization, right? Lockheed and Boeing and these companies probably have as much of that budget as they're going to get, and they can't diversify it into commercial necessarily, whereas some of these commercial firms or new startups, they might have some potential to actually go commercial. So there's like that osmosis. You can go one way, but not the other way,
1: and, and that might have an impact. Do you think that has any bearing here? Surely that is the case for most companies, but not necessarily all. If you look at the pivot that Microsoft made recently into the cloud, it missed tech revolution after tech revolution, and then successfully made the turn, and is one of these $1 trillion dollar market cap companies now. So it is possible to be done. Look at the auto industry. Some companies are making the turn into smart vehicles and electric vehicles, and some aren't so you've got to have innovative leadership that's really looking to that that's willing to take the risk to make that turn and not every company will make it and that's okay our economy is set up to take the resources of a Sears that fails to make the transition. So if you think of Sears as a classic case model in the 1960s you could order a house Sears would deliver a house and you could build it. Not even Amazon can do that today. So it was doing online ordering you did it by phone or by mail and you ordered it it had a catalog yet today sears is bankrupt and its land is worth more than its business model because its leadership were locked into a business model that said i have this big box i'm going to take all this product and display it and i'm going to bring people in and then along came jeff bezos who was selling books out of seattle And he said, hey, I'll use this big warehouse. I don't have the books, but I'll send them out to the people. And he was rewarding people who could program and people who could write the code to enable that. And at Sears, right, you couldn't rise to the leadership level of Sears unless you had managed a store. The problem is once you manage a store, you can't imagine a store in a different way. And so it stuck to that. Go to an Amazon warehouse and go to a, a Sears store. They're the same thing. But they've just flipped the business model around and they reward how you get that distribution to the customer differently. And one company is bankrupt and the other's worth worth $2 trillion. And so that's the problem with the Department of Defense is, right, we don't allow that competition to occur and that turning upside down. And we view, right, the demise of a Sears-like program with regret. And we have congressional testimony as opposed to saying, hey, yeah, they couldn't make it. Sorry. On to the next one
0: yeah it definitely feels like the traditional primes maybe they don't have the best product but they have an awesome distribution but i I take your point though but i think the competition that's coming up here it might push those traditional primes to innovate and they have a lot of smart people they have that distribution system they actually have a lot of great products too that that could be a very interesting aspect there and it does feel like i was also thinking yeah the top line budget feels zero sum, but maybe there's a lot more clips in there right if 70% of a weapon system's cost is sustainment. If we can make that more modern, drive that sustainment cost down and be able to reinvest that into product development, like there's some money. Elmer Statz, he he used to always say in the seventies, 50% of research and development money is just wasted on documentation. If we could have a more efficient process for just getting experimentation and and scaling and deciding on technologies then we could drive that out and and add more money there as well to actually do things. So
1: it doesn't seem like zero sum. I guess I got to agree with you. So think about the defense primes, right? When you think about their real core competence, their real core competence is dealing with the government, writing proposals, cost accounting, all the documentation that's got to go, right? Living within the federal acquisition regulations, having a separate accounting system. Okay, when you have all those inefficiencies, it's hard to compete right so you've got to change the paradigm which says if if you're buying a product then you really if when you go to the store and you're buying a pen you really don't care right and it's a buck and you pay a buck that's great if you're buying a pen that's purposely designed for you and the guy says it's five bucks or a buck you're going to want to know how was that money spent show me every single penny and every fraction of a penny and here are rules on who you can hire and who you can't hire and what you have to do with your facilities and all that. So that's a massive inefficiency built into the system that just slows everything down and inhibits competition. If you get to this faster commodity type approach, and that's the problem with a lot of these, some of these companies don't want to do business with the government because it's really expensive to put in a government compliant accounting system. And you got to ask yourself, if we have generally accepted accounting principles, why does the government need its own accounting system. And the reason is because it does a lot of reimbursable work. And if you're paying for time and material reimbursable work, you want to make sure you're not. So instead, buy a product, right? So if you look at Microsoft saying, hey, I'll sell you the product. Or I'll bankroll the back office stuff and do that. Whatever you do, please don't make me sit and join the all the different things. And so you see that with this fast tiered acquisition approach, which kind of enables companies and enables to bypass the acres and acres of trees that have to be felled to produce all the written documents that are needed to do a program. So mid-tier acquisition. But what's interesting is, yes, but if we do real acquisition that's not mid-tier, then you have to follow all this paperwork and lead to acquisition failure because there's no documented history really of those programs ever succeeding since about 1980. That system served us well from 1950 to 1980. And has failed us from 1980 onwards.
0: So let's pivot a little bit here. Uh, I want to talk about what we've been seeing in the economy in terms of inflation, and it's been creeping up past six percent on a year-to-year basis. Do you think this inflation is temporary, or do you think it will reflect a longer-term trend?
1: Well, so you know, inflation, right? Like all things in life, temporary depends upon what your definition of short-term and long-term. Are. If we use the word temporary where people are using it today, which is, hey, by this time next year, inflation will be back below 2%, I don't believe that. So the inflation numbers came out today 6.8%, up from 6.2%. So it continues to spike. It's the highest it's been in 39 years. So things are just going to cost more. So even if you believe it's transitory in nature and short duration, things still cost. 6.9% 6.9% more than they did a year ago, which means you can buy 6.9% less things. I'm not a believer that it's a short-term transitory phenomenon because you can already see inflation expectations creeping in and wages going up and contracts being negotiated that go in. Look at the I-bonds that the government is selling, right? They, they're indexed to inflation. So government interest is going up, right? So the amount of money that the government's got to pay just to service its debt due to the inflation is going up. So you wind up in this spiral of upward prices, right? Inflation is, once that inflation genie is out of the bottle, it's really painful to put back in, and you can wish it back in, but there's almost no documented case in the history of the world where that's possible. So soldiers today, and airmen, Marines, Coast Guard, right, they're taking a real pay cut. So when you talk about recruiting for the all these technical people they're getting a 2.7% pay raise but inflation is up 6.9% with all these $15 wages with all wages going up and wages in America is the largest component of anything that we produce it's 66% or so of of the cost of goods sold that's going up but then oil is going up in price and, and other parts and as we begin sourcing things the friction with China goes up and we have to produce plants and domestic capacity, there's gonna be an initial surge of inflation for the capital expenditure and for the restructuring of the supply chain that's associated with that. So my personal belief is that inflation is gonna be with us for several years and we can have a debate of whether it will be 4%, 6, is 6.8% the peak? I don't know, people thought 6.2 might be last month, well, now it's up to 6.8 this morning. Right, is it seven, eight, nine, ten? Where does this thing peak? And so the defense budget. Now you saw the authorizers and the Congress indicated that there's twenty-five billion dollars extra in the defense budget above the president's request for 2022. That's starting. Now that's not an appropriation, so the money is not there, but it's a good indication that a bipartisan support is there for $25 billion extra in defense. The challenge for defense is that the Biden administration's budget for 2022 was 754 billion and 756 for 23. That's 0% inflation. Well, if you're running at 6%, now you've got a 6% decrease in buying power. So the question now as we approach February, right when the president has to drop his budget to Congress and the decisions are being made in the Pentagon, is do they submit a budget at $756 billion, which is a real cut year over year of almost 7%? And where's that cut going to come from? Is it going to come, are they going to cut bore structure? Are they going to cut procurement quantities again? And the challenge when you cut procurement quantities on these systems is the price goes up. So you start inducing your own inflation into your systems, right? So that's that insidious nature, right? You have less money, so you buy fewer systems. Fewer systems means the price of each system goes up, which means you're spending more money on fewer systems, which means you have to cut the number of systems and you wind up in this cycle. And so it'll be interesting what the administration does for twenty three and then what the Congress does in response to that.
0: Yeah, I like to to call it the death spiral of programs. You cut the quality, the price goes up, overhead rates go up, and then it causes you to want to reduce it more and more. <laughs> and then that always leads to these same outcomes like we need one massive program to rule them all, because that has the lowest O&S cost, it has the lowest production costs, and we get back into those kinds of fallacies of
1: the monolithic programs. It's um, the command economy, and uh, I've dubbed it the inflation is the giant anaconda that's going to squeeze the life out of the Department of Defense. It's going it's to wind up slowly over a period of three to five years destroying the defense establishment if we can't get it under control. Quickly, and part of getting it under control is allowing for this competition that we talk about, and to get rid of the inefficiencies in the system.
0: Yeah, it seems like in the past, in the seventies, there was all that inflation, and then they started actually building it into their estimates of the weapons programs. Because we always just say, "Okay, what's the future? We don't know." Two percent's the kind of Fed goal, so we'll just assume that two percent growth will go into the future. And then, and now things are different than what we expected on these life cycle program costs, and so there's always these drives to it. At that time, it was a big deal. Let's start baking in the escalation rates we see into the future. And then what happened in the 80s was that they had this massive slush fund, right? Like it was all that excess inflation built into the estimates was going into this reserve. And in that reserve, it was like going up towards tens of billions of dollars. And it became like this kind of scandal when Volcker was actually able to bend inflation. It seems like the department always has these ways of getting like Continuing resolutions and the GAO have that report. The department has all these processes for alleviating the continuing resolution problem. That doesn't mean continuing resolutions are a problem, but like the department adapts in a way to get around that. Do you do you think like this will just impact program cost estimates and it'll just be incremental changes and they'll just plus that up to, to match inflation? Or do you think there's a real structural problem with inflation in the department?
1: Yeah. So I think, first off, your comment about the CRs, right? The department just builds in and accepts massive inefficiencies. So yes, it's inefficient and we can adapt to make it work. And we all go, okay, it's inefficient. And we accept the fact that we will spend the amount of dollars we get, the amount of dollars appropriated to get less defense. And then we sit around and wonder why the defense is spending so much money and getting so little in return. It's because these baked in inefficiencies. On inflation, I think that there the challenge is what does the administration and the Congress do? Does it try to squeeze it out of the department? So somebody asked the Secretary of the Air Force, right, hey, the next in twenty three, the statutory pay raise for soldiers is four point seven percent, right? Up from two point six, which is still below the six point eight percent inflation rate. By the way, so two years in a row of real cuts to pay. But they asked, they said, Do you have the money to do that? And remember, I told you it was 754 to 756. And the answer is no. So right now, as we sit here at this podcast, right, they're in the Pentagon trying to sort out. And the question is, does the Office of Management and Budget give them more money to buy their way out of it, or do they have to make choices to cut force structure, cut modernization, cut training dollars? You saw the Army last year said, we're going to redefine training and we won't train as much, but we'll still be ready. Really? How are you going to do that? So you can talk yourself into these solutions and then justify them, right? So the system's set up where it allows the services to make some of these trades to avoid the most distasteful cuts. So in the Army's case, it wants to build a helicopter and it doesn't want to cut its force structure. So it will go over to the Congress and go no really these cuts to the readiness accounts they're they're really not that bad please don't cut my helicopter or my force structure the navy has things it wants to protect and so you you never have a real conversation over what is it that we're doing why is it costing what it's costing and how can we do it differently and what what is the cost of defense
0: yeah can you get a little bit into what is legacy versus not legacy would would what- a more portfolio structure allow the services to make those decisions faster? Do you think Congress with its equity is really the one that needs to be deciding like every single helicopter, every single ground vehicle ship, like what gets retired, what doesn't get
1: retired? My fellow colleagues and scholars at the American Enterprise Institute have done just some remarkable work talking about this. And what's interesting about the term legacy and transformational or whatever you want to call it is, right? Anything can be tagged anything. And so if you're a big new shiny program, your goal is to tag all your competitor programs as legacy so that they can be cut from funding because we've defined the word as legacy as bad and in need of cutting, right? As opposed to, hey, the army vehicles, right? Yeah, they're legacy, but why can't we just inject technology into it? Legacy and transformational programs really are terms used to reinforce the status quo of big new shiny RDTE programs win, and programs that are actually delivering value in production and rolling off an assembly line are bad and are losers because they were because they're in production, right? The, the best I could tell the term legacy is anything I own today versus you know what I want to build on a clean PowerPoint sheet of paper. And that gets back to, The platform, weapon, system-centric notion of how you view the world. If you view the world that way, okay, that's true, but we don't need to view the world that way. The revolution that's occurring is in network communications and in software and in data, and really it's how do I take those new technologies and inject them cost-effectively into the systems I have today to make them incrementally better than they are or even transform how they are. Think about the smartphone. They took the basic framework of an analog phone, of a cell phone and turned it into, you know, a supercomputer, essentially. And using cloud computing, but a lot of the technology and the, and the ways of doing things were the same. They didn't go out and invent a new form. So that's the challenge we've got now is, right, is it's easy to ask for a spreadsheet in the Pentagon. Okay, I want to transform the Department of Defense. Okay, produce a list label from one to N all the programs in department and let's tag them where we can take money and where we can't take money and we'll use these terms as opposed to the hard work of these are the technological foundations and I'm gonna reward the systems that are out there that are able to inject these things into them. I'll give them money when they show me they work and I'll starve them of money when they fail. Let's get a little bit deeper
0: into this money problem here. Can you have a little bit of your time at the G8 at the army. So you're in charge of the program analysis and evaluation. And of course, a lot of the, like the program objective memorandum, like how these programs get money would go through that channel. So can you talk a little bit about that? And then also like, what would we not find in a textbook or a CRS report about how that system works?
1: Yeah. So I think what you won't find in the textbook about how the system works is how much of a grind it is, right? You, you think that, okay, once the army and everybody makes these decisions, they're static, but they're not. It's every single day, every cycle, every year you're revisiting decisions over and over and over again. So you keep plowing the same ground over and over again. And it is mostly a manual process. You go into these conference rooms and there's no mobile devices and you're using PowerPoint. So you're trying to convey multi-dimensional decisions. All complex decisions have to be boiled down to a PowerPoint slide that has option A, B, and C and can fit on one and maybe, if you're lucky, two slides, right? And there's no visualization of information or data that now allows for nuance. Decision making, and you know, there's never a solution, it's really a plethora of options that you can choose from on multi dimensions. But because the screens in the conference room show Microsoft PowerPoint, everything is boiled down to one dimensional decision, sequential decision making. And when you make decisions sequentially, they lead to these non reversible forks in the road. If you think about it, it's the old method of manufacturing you start with the Ford plant and you you put a raw ingredient on one end, and the car just materializes as it goes sequentially, as opposed to its batch and process, as opposed to sequential production of the, the lean Six Sigma way of doing business. So there's actually,
0: in the FY22 NDAA, it looks like they're about to drop a major commission on planning, programming, budgeting, execution reform, PBBE reform. And we talk a lot about that on the podcast, but with your former uh, position and your perspective on that, what would you say is the problem, but then also what where are the solution spaces for it in, in PBBE reform?
1: The major criticism of PPBE is that it takes too long and it's true right it's like from when you have an idea to when you get money it could be three or four or five years but part of that when you start peeling the onion apart and you look at where it is it all starts with the constitution of the united states right so the constitution says no funds can be drawn on the treasury that which aren't appropriated by the congress so the congress has to appropriate money and the congress has got to appropriating money in a very detailed manner lines and sublines and budget activity groups and quantities and the information and you can't move the money. And and once it's set that you're gonna buy 10 10 widgets, you can't go and buy 10 other widgets that are different. You have to do that. And so when you look at it and when you look at when the money is finally appropriated, if it's regular you get it one October of let's say 2021. Now we're under CR, so it'll be six months late. But now let's look at how you got a plan to get the Congress, right? The Congress says, if you want it on one October, you've got to tell me what you want, Mr. President, on one February. And the president goes, OK, OMB, if we're going to drop it on one February, you've got to be done so we can send in a printing plan over Christmas. And OMB tells the service, it tells the departments they got to have it to them by Christmas. And the departments say, well, I got to do my review. So services, you have it to me in June. So June of 2020 for June of 21. And the services then go to their commands and go, I have to turn it to OSD in June. So i want to start it a year before. And what you have is this long stretched out cycle for a level of fidelity where the system really breaks down. And the reason you have this kind of batch processing of information is at every step along the way, there are non-interoperable databases of information. Each command has their information. And then the services have their own information systems. And then OSD has both the CAPE system and the comptroller system, which then has to be converted into the OMB system, which then gets transmitted in paper to a congressional system. And as you roll it up, you can't then take what Congress appropriates and recreate it back to where it started. So one of the potential solutions is and if you're the Congress and you're appropriating money and you want to see that the money that you appropriated by statute is being spent, as you said, right now it's got to ask for reports and it right, it can't monitor things in real time. If we had one information system that OMB, the Congress, the Services, the Department of Defense used, it contained all the information, right? And you could pivot the data however you wanted to by appropriation, by quantities. If you look at a weapon say, Well, some of it's an RDT E. Some of it's in MILCON. Well, that's a different congressional committee. You can't ever assemble anything back together again, so you don't actually know what you're doing. And Congress then has views into how the executive branch is spending the money in real time. Now you get out of this problem of reprogramming. Think about these reprogramming. The department types them out onto a form and sends them to the Congress in paper, as opposed to everybody watching this thing in real time and moving the money in a computer system. So we're still managing ourselves as if it were the madman era of the 1950s. And if we can, because the system is set up that each path along the way is set up to not trust the other path and redo the work, it takes several years as opposed to going to a continuous flow of information between the Congress and the executive branch. But now you're into constitutional issues way things have been done for years. And so that's the real reform that's needed is a single information system that everybody uses and shares.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting view on it. it. We've definitely seen over time that like, from the Bounding Fathers, you started with lump sum appropriations and slowly started to see rules be put around it, the Anti-Deficiency Act, and then in 1921, you had the Budgeting and Accounting Act. And then, but still, even in the 1950s, right, there were these broad appropriations. They didn't actually detail individual line items that the department had that like was forced to spend. And when I looked at the budget structure at that time, a program was literally like weapons for the Army. And then a project underneath that was like artillery. And so what a program was, was a much higher level thing. And you could see how they could flex within weapons pretty well. And like a CR wouldn't hurt you so much because you could still do that new start without prior approval. But then like over time, over the sixties and seventies and the PBBE coming into place, that really detailed line iteming of programs. I think there's one aspect, which is the information systems, right? Like we just, Congress just needs to be able to see in better in real time, what's happening with the dollars where is it going? How is it obligated? And what value am I getting for that? But then the other part seems to be you don't need that kind of like ad hoc flexibility if it's built into the structure of the budget itself, like it had been in the past, more of a portfolio style of systems. And then you you know where that money is going as opposed to having to predict it upfront. So How do you, do you think portfolios, like, I definitely agree. I think the place you have to start is with this transparency and and data systems that allow for more streamlined information system. But do you think portfolios are also a part of that?
1: Yeah. So I think it's trust, right? When you boil everything you just said, it's trust. And over the seventies and the eighties, as acquisition systems failed, or as people did things they weren't supposed to Congress started legislating in finer and granular detail because it there there was this trust breakdown between the branches right when you think about our society though when you think about information systems it's funny because if somebody were to say hey i want to start a company and people are going to allow their 18 year old kids in kansas to go to new york city and stay in strange people's bedrooms you'd be like well that's a bad idea right who's going to trust That, right? I mean, we put this smartphone and information system in there, and all of a sudden you have this. The smartphone is really a a a tool of trust. You trust that when you hit and call for a a cab on the smartphone, people are willing to put their like 10-year-old kids in an Uber, but they would never flag down a cab and say, okay, 10-year-old kid, go in the cab and, and get there. Because they're able to track along the way, right? There's this trust that the cab is registered in there so you know who they are. And you can watch this thing in real time go through. You can see feedback from other people who have used it, right? It's this radical transparency that allows this trust. And that is completely and utterly missing in the system. Therefore, in the absence of trust you have to micromanage down to the nth degree and you say you can only spend this money you got to give me this report and come back because there is no trust in the system because there is no common operating vision of what is going on and if you don't have trust and you don't have that common picture you're doomed to have the micromanagement so i hope the ppbe reform that they look at the smartphone they look at information technology and they say the way to fix this thing is not to sit around and try to make the meeting shorter because that's just taking the same system you have and trying to eke out a couple of percentage points, but to transform it around the information system and really redo the way those are done. And then you'll find out that that revolutionizes the entire process.
0: Yeah, I really like that analogy there. and might start stealing it myself. So I want to dive a little bit into Army itself and your experience there. There's been a, a lot of new kind of changes in organization going on with the Army Futures Command. Can you describe in terms of like acquisition authority, what's the new dynamic between AFC, ASALT, and
1: Army Material Command? It's evolving. So I think that's a kind way to talk about it. And the challenges, of course, are there are statutory provisions that were put in place over time that define clear rules and authorities that may or may not be the right way of doing business in the year 2020. So they've been put in bid really, you know, you can go back to 1986, Goldwater Nichols reformed the acquisition system and created these different stovepipes and authorities and legal authorities. And so everybody is trying to reform the system and everybody, for the most part, everybody wakes up in the morning wanting to do the right thing, but they're coming at it from a statutory driven system that was put in place for a very different era and trying to operate within that. And so I think we would never build the system we have today from the ground up. If we could erase all the acquisition rules and then put a couple people in the room and say, hey, design this thing, it wouldn't look like this. And so that's the problem is the Army is trying to transform the way it does requirements, resources, and acquisition which we talked about before a little bit, we, we talked about IVAS. It was born on the wreckage of a program. So it had a little dollars available in the current year. It didn't have a requirement document and it didn't go through the DOD 5000. It just bloomed up. But the problem is, right, the system is not set up for that. And so what you have are just the army trying to move the deck chairs around within the current environment of rules and regulations. And while the army is changing, DOD may or may not you know, accept some of the changes, and the Congress may or may not accept some of the changes. And so you've really got to look at how requirements, resourcing, and acquisition, those authorities fit together because right now they're trifurcated. Oh, I want to
0: pivot here and get back up to a higher level and get some of your experience as well. You were there at the height of uh, Afghanistan, and you saw how the system was really able to have a sense of urgency and move fast in fielding capability in that time. And we've been hearing recently that it seems war is not binary, right? It seems like we're almost in some level of war with China. And John Thompson from the Space Force was just saying a couple of days ago, our satellites are under attack literally every day. So can you talk a little bit about that experience in Afghanistan? And should the whole system be operating like that now that we're in strategic competition and really have that mindset
1: throughout? So, the challenge is that in order for the system to operate at that level, remember what I just talked about, which was right, you got all these bureaucracies and these laws and these regulations. It took the Secretary of Defense himself, Bob Gates, to essentially, because all the authorities flow through him, for him to sit on top of the entire system and force it through. And it took the Congress of the United States to essentially appropriate colorless, timeless money to trust the department and Secretary Gates to go out and fail. But within the failure, you'll succeed and you'll get the systems to the warfighters. And they were willing to accept the failures along the way. So you had this timeless, colorless money. You had a secretary of defense willing to override all of the statutory authorities through his wartime waivers, which he has the authority to do. Remember, we talk about all these statutory authorities. He can go national emergency waived. So the system is set up That in order to do that, a single person has got to go in there time and time again and override the system as opposed to flipping it the other way where people aren't able to do that and then you have watchdogs who are able to turn it off when it's not going right. The Secretary of Defense is a busy person. He's got a lot on his plate, so he doesn't have time right now to flip that switch for national emergency for everything going on in the department. And so you wind up back to the old system over and over again because you can't get there. Yeah, it seems a dispersion
0: of information problems. In my mind, a lot of the problems that the Congress and Department see, like with the JADC2, for example, they just want, okay, just put someone in charge and give them the authority to get it done. Like you you said, we need better information systems. Supposedly better information systems would allow the Secretary of Defense to actually put his finger on a, a whole bunch more stuff Faster and provide those waivers. But does he really have the knowledge to know which ones to pick and choose are the right ones? Or is he really just the people at the bottom telling him what to do anyway? Because they're the ones who know the context, know the technology, know what is needed. How do you
1: see that flow? But think about the global supply chain or Amazon, right? They're, they've got this visibility down into the warehouses of all this stuff going on. And it's not that Andy Jassy or Jeff Bezos was sitting on top making decisions of move that package to the left or one package to the right, making those decisions. They were looking at the macro trends of efficiency and, right, they had their metrics and then they were creating software, some using artificial intelligence and data analytics to mine that and and produce the alerts needed to tell the managers, hey, there's a problem. So if you go to an Amazon warehouse today, the managers, the software is queuing the managers to where there are problems. And so you would do the same thing, which is you'd use the software to queue the secretary of defense, which says, hey, wait a minute, this program's there's something wrong here, you need to go into it. And you would allow the kind of software system and the staff then to go look at that by exception.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot. Yeah, management by exception used to be a, a very big uh, management term in the 40s and 50s. And it seems like that was actually replaced with a much more active management style throughout the department.
1: Yeah, so I would argue that today it, the department is managed by the early bird. So if it's in the early bird, it catches everybody's attention, and if not, then it keeps going, and they focus on it until it's not in the till the next thing pops up, and then you turn your attention to that. Yeah, reactionary. It. How about let's end on the uh, the AUKUS deal, where
0: the U.S. and the U.K. are supporting Australia getting subs. What's your view on that, and how can we accelerate delivery and capabilities to partners?
1: Yeah, so first it was a, a bolt of strategic. Genius, right? That you, right, as a government, we're, we're generally don't have those that often. So it, it was a great strategic move. I think it was blunted a little bit. The effect of it was blunted when we came out right after the announcement and said, but don't worry, China, it'll be two decades before a sub hits the water. So it's, hey, I've got this great deal, but you've got 20 years to do something about it. So I think what would be effective is like operationalizing that today. Imagine World War II, Britain, I know you're under attack, but we'll be there in 10 years, just withstand more rockets. So a Lend Leash. so how can we get subs? First, there's really two things you wanna do. There's a messaging, just getting nuclear submarines in the hands of the Australians is critical. So you've gotta do that. And then the second piece is, how do you get more subs in the water? Because if you're just reshuffling the subs, then, okay, they're in different hands, but you really haven't changed the strategic equations. So, on the first one, which is really important, which is when we start putting Australians on US sub crews today, and over time, you've got a sub and the Australians, you start having a mixed crew, and then you chop a submarine over to the Australians and you say, Have a nice day. And it's got a mixed Australian United States or great British crew or only three. It's under the command and control of the Australians. So they can say, look, we've got a nuclear submarine and it's operating in China. And so now China's going to look at and wonder what they're doing. Then the question is, right, how do you get more subs in the water? And so if it's, we're going to build the Australians their own class of submarines, holy cow, right? That, That takes decades to do and will create interoperability challenges. And now you can't resupply in parts and Diminishing returns, and think how expensive that is. The United States and Great Britain have the astute class. in Virginia. So pick one and let's start accelerating production and figure out how to take one off the production line or accelerate production. Or take some of the older submarines that the United States is about to decommission. And instead of decommissioning them, say, okay, Australia, these are yours, right? They're good for the next five to ten years. We're getting rid of them because we can't afford them, but you take them. And so now you've increased the quantity of submarines in the system while you ramp up the industrial base in order to do that. And so now you've really, you've given the Chinese a strategic dilemma of both more subs and different command and control over those submarines. So those are the two things that need to happen in the near term, not, hey, it'll be 20 years. Awesome. Is there anything you'd like to end on? I just want to say thanks for what you do and uh, right for enabling all these discussions. And it's a great podcast. And I'm proud to, that you had me on your show.
0: Awesome. Thanks, John Ferrari. And hopefully we'll have you back on Acquisition Talk. Thank you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.